Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. A group of us had the privilege of traveling to the Holy Land several years ago, and it included quite a number from our church here. Part of our visit took us down into the area of the Dead Sea. Even if you've not visited the Dead Sea, you certainly know that it is, it is the lowest point on earth in a very real sense, 1,300 feet below sea level. The salinity of the water is about eight times the salinity of seawater. And so you float on the Dead Sea. And I mean you float. <laughs> Furthermore, you don't want to enter the Dead Sea if, without thinking about whether or not you've nicked yourself shaving or you have an abrasion because it will sting in a way that will make you say things that are not in the Sabbath School Quarterly. And so here we are at the Dead Sea where everything floats. Kirk Campbell, who is our board chair here at Loma Linda University Church, is floating on the Dead Sea, and he has with him his iPhone. It's encased in a case that is waterproof and everything is good, and Kirk is floating and living the good life and taking pictures of things all around him when he accidentally comes into contact with Doug Mace's foot. Now, Doug says it was by accident, so we'll take that on faith. It knocked it out of Kirk's hand, and there went the iPhone all the way down to the bottom, about 15 feet down. So human beings float, iPhones don't. And thus began about a two-hour endeavor to recover that iPhone. So it started with people trying to dive down to get it. That didn't last too long because you can't. You can do all you can try to do, but you cannot go down. You float. I even saw my nephew who was with us after he had tried it, and he was walking up toward the freshwater showers. He was beet red. I thought, well, that didn't go so well. So finally, Doug and Kirk concocted a plan. The plan would consist of, of Kirk trying to go down and Doug standing on him, pushing him down. <laughs> okay, so, so Doug is trying to push him down, and unfortunately, Kirk opened his eyes to see where the phone was. That didn't go so well, so... Uh, Doug is trying to push him down, and he can't push him down. I, I don't know why. It's something about, I don't know, soft hands or something, but he couldn't push him down. Um, <laughs> so everything they're trying is not working until finally Doug went up on the bank, on the banks of the Dead Sea, and he spread his arms out, and the water parted, and they wa No, not really. <laughs> They went and got a couple of poles, and they jimmied something together that allowed them to get those poles down into the bottom and, and somehow clamp onto that iPhone and rescue it. So finally, the affair was over with. But it was a memory we took from the Dead Sea, but not the only one. 
The main memory I think we took from the Dead Sea is that in the Dead Sea itself and the environs around the Dead Sea, everything just looks so dead. <laughs> it's an amazing place. And I'm sure that those who study such things will tell you that there are certain plants and other things that grow there. There's no question about that. But the overwhelming sense you get is this is just deserted, dead desert. It does make you wonder, what would happen if you had an abundance of fresh water? Would, as Isaiah said, would the desert blossom like a rose? Would it come to life? The passage we look at today in Ezekiel leads us in the direction of the Dead Sea. And we'll see what Ezekiel has to say he saw in vision. So today we come to the third and last, <clears throat> thankfully, of our series on Ezekiel. It's been a tough journey, I'm going to tell you. It's been a difficult journey going through Ezekiel, but we've come to the third one when ancient visions become future vision, and we come in that process to Ezekiel 47. Now, I have to set a bit of the stage in order to get a sense of what is happening here. Ezekiel's in vision, and in this vision, it is as though a guide has taken him by the hand and has walked him through the temple grounds, through its environs, through its surroundings, through the temple itself, and in the process is measuring every aspect of the temple. And it seems that he's trying to show Ezekiel, when you come back from exile, this place will be restored. It will be restored in its correct proportions. You will have a sense that God is in this place again. And so Ezekiel must have been going through that vision and thinking, what a relief. We will come back home. We will have our land. We will have our home. We will have our temple. We will have our God. All will be well with the world. And then comes Ezekiel 47. And if you're prone to that, you're liable to be set off equilibrium in this chapter, I suspect Ezekiel might have been. It's a vision of a river. Ezekiel chapter 47, beginning with verse 1, says this, the man, that is his guide, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, and now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? So in the vision, the temple is restored. God is back. And the temple is closed. 
How do we know the temple is closed? Because the water that's flowing out of the temple is flowing under the threshold. It's under the door. It's coming out of the temple. And Ezekiel is not going to know that unless the guide takes him by the hand, walks him around through another route, brings him back to face that door, and to see that that's coming out from other, under the temple. The temple is closed. God is there. And the door is shut. Got me to thinking about that. What would that be like? After this service, every week, we usually, Anita and I, hang around and talk with those of you who remain, and, and we kind of stay to the bitter end. You know, when our kids were young, it was, Mom, Dad, let's go. You know, they wanted to leave. But we love talking with you, and so we usually stay until pretty much everyone else is gone, and it's happens on occasion in walking out of this place and heading toward my car that somebody will come running up and say, Pastor, pa oh, good, you're still here. I left my phone in the church. And I've checked all the way around. All the doors are locked. I can't get in. Can you let me in? So we'll come in. Where were you sitting? Well, I was sitting right over here. We'll come over and look up and down the pew. We're down looking under the pew. Well, why don't you call it? And, and Well, maybe it's back in the deacon's room. That's kind of our lost and found. So we go back there. And on occasion, sure enough, there it is. And they take their phone. They say, I have my life back. And then they leave. <laughs> <laughs> Reading Ezekiel this week got me to wondering, what if we had that very same scenario with one difference? What if we understood, as many, not just of the Jewish people, but many of the ancient people believed, the location of God was geographically specific. God could be contained in this place. And someone comes. The pastors aren't around. You don't have a key. And they say, I want to get in. Because God is in there, but the door is shut. Can you imagine the experience? But it's a very natural experience when it comes to religions, and we are not immune. Religions, see, tend to build certain kinds of boxes around God, certain kinds of categories, certain kinds of boundaries that say, God is in here. We have God. He's not out there with you. Furthermore, have you noticed how often it is, as one person said, you know you've remade God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> you have him in this box, contained here. Others can't get in. We can do a whole range of things. We can write books. We can write statements. We can preach sermons. We can pass motions saying this person or that person or that kind of person is not welcome here. We have God, and the door is closed. The funny thing about putting God in a box is that as you hold on to the box, you suddenly realize the box is a bit damp and then a bit wet, and then it's sopping wet. Something's leaking out of it much like Ezekiel discovered. When he is taken around to the outside, the front, he looks back, he sees the door there, and he realizes there is water flowing out from under the threshold, from under the door, 
flowing out water, that life-giving liquid in the ancient world, that life-giving liquid in the desert world, representative of the presence and the power and the life-giving goodness of God, and it's leaking out from under the door. In other words, God cannot be contained. God is not going to be confined. God is not going to be constrained. God is going to leak out even if we try to keep him in here. And Ezekiel sees that. It's really not much to notice at first. It's just a trickle coming out from under the door. But if Ezekiel thinks about it, if we think about it, that's the way God often works. Start small. All you have to do is follow the itinerant teacher named Jesus of Nazareth around for a while and listen to what he says to draw that conclusion. Jesus talks about a, a pearl, a mustard seed, treasure, a child, a lost sheep, a wayward son. All of these to represent the might and the grandeur and the power of God and God's kingdom. It's just small at the beginning. Like a woman, says Jesus, taking some yeast and kneading it into the dough. That same trip to the Holy Land took some other pictures. I want to show you a picture of my thumb here, I think it is. It'll show up on the screen. You can see something right on the end of my thumb, little yellow object if you look very closely. There's another picture in case you can't, you can't see it. It's, it's the, on the back seat of the bus seat in front of me. That's my index finger pointing at it. Just that little yellow dab of something. That's a mustard seed. Tiny. This is the seed of which Jesus, speaking in Mark's gospel, said, it is the smallest of all seeds. And yet he says, when you plant it, it becomes the largest of garden plants. Here's a picture of mustard plants. Beautiful. We walk through acres of them. Mustard plants in full bloom, a brilliant yellow. And just as Jesus said, the birds can nest in their branches. It started tiny. But it grew. That's what Ezekiel sees. That little stream out from under the door. Symbolic of God's presence that will not be contained in the temple any longer. But God is going to start moving, moving out into the world, moving in the direction of the deadness and the dryness and the despondency and the rejected of the world. But then something remarkable happens because the guy takes Ezekiel by the hand and walks him away from the temple, walks him about five football fields in length, and then stops and says, Ezekiel, what do you notice now? He says, well, the water. I'm sloshing through it now. It's up to my ankles. Grabs him again. Five more football fields. Now what do you see? Well, it's up to my knees. Five more. Now what do you see? I'm wading through it. It's up to my waist. It's growing as it's going and flowing. And then he takes him out, no doubt, and walks him along the bank where they have to duck and dodge between the branches and the bushes and the trees of, of, of beautiful, green, fruitful trees. 
Several more football fields. He stops and he says, now, son of man, now what do you see? He says, I see a river that no one can cross. What has happened? Little bit, little bit of research on rivers. Why do they grow? Why do they grow in volume and size and momentum and force? Why do they grow? And there are many reasons, including the rainfall, but in a special way, the tributaries that flow into them cause them to grow in size. Ezekiel's river grows. The question for us is, what does that mean for us? Well, if anything, it means at least this, that we all as individuals, that we as a body, as a community of faith, we pray to be tributaries that feed into the great river of God's grace that flows out of this place and into the world far beyond us, that we can never be comfortable thinking we have God and he's here within these walls. Because God will not be confined. God will not be constrained. God's movement is always outward. And so we look at what we have. We look at our buildings, our campus, our spaces, and we say with great gratitude, God, thank you for the blessings you have bestowed. May we use them with great wisdom. May we use them to build and grow disciples, to worship your name, to study your word, to encourage one another, to grow together. But then let us move out, flowing outward into the world where the true need exists. The river of God's grace and presence flowing to satiate the thirst of a dying world. And by the way, speaking of that, it brings us back to the remainder of Ezekiel's vision. Back to Ezekiel 47, this time starting about halfway through verse 6. He says, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, that is the desert, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water flesh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Inaglam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will be for food and leaves for healing. Bible students tend to understand this in one of four ways. The first way that some understand it is to say, this was a vision given to Ezekiel which God desired to literally fulfill. When his people returned from exile and came back to their land as they lived in faithfulness to him, the desert would blossom like a rose. It didn't happen because they didn't remain faithful. Could be. 
But when you lay this vision next to Revelation, you think there's something bigger than that. A second way it's understood by some, and this is by quite a few, is that this is descriptive of the millennium. That thousand-year period of time which some have said will come upon the world before Christ comes. As Adventists, that has never been our position. And I have noticed that since, you read, since reading from commentators of the last century into this, that has tailed off because if you hadn't noticed, the world isn't getting better. So that's probably not what it is. A third group says this vision is really a vision about the coming kingdom of God when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, when all will be made over and will be made new. Now that is something to which I could say amen. And then the fourth. The fourth group says this is a vision which God desires for his people always, in all times, in all places, a vision which says, please do not believe you can confine me because wherever you go, I've been there before you got there. I will not be confined or constrained by any one space or by any one people. And furthermore, where my presence goes, there comes life. And I can say amen to that. In fact, I would suggest that if you look at the vision, probably the most important lesson in the vision can be read in the last line of verse 9, which simply says, so where the river flows, everything will live. So where the river flows, everything will live. And then we have to ask ourselves, has that been true? As we as tributaries flow into the great river of God's mercy and grace and presence and love, has our influence been a savor, as Paul will later say it, of life unto life? The truth is, people who name the name of Christ throughout the last 2,000 years have done some terrible things in his name, awful things, things for which profound repentance is required. They have not been a savor of life unto life. It has not been true that wherever they went, things came to life. We must own that, understand that, know that, repent of that, so that our lives will not fall into that same pattern. But if you think about it, such actions almost always arise from communities that draw certain boundaries that say, this is where God lives. God is with us, not with you. He's not for you. We have the corner on God where the temple is closed. But where the door is open, and where the life-giving liquid of God's love flows into the desert places, that's a whole different story. Because then, where the river goes, everything lives. The question becomes, what does that look like today? When that happens, when we have truly sold ourselves out to the love of God,
for the need of the world. What does that look like? A thousand different stories could answer. Let me choose just one. Travel with me down Interstate 10 toward the west to a place called Boyle Heights, East Los Angeles, the early 90s. It was a war zone. Eight rival gangs were battling for supremacy day after day, but especially night after night, the bullets flew and the bodies fell. Wounded bodies littered the street, dead bodies on a daily basis. And the gang warfare only intensified. It was then that at Dolores Mission, a small Catholic church, a group of mothers gathered together. Group of mothers studying the Bible, reading Scripture, and praying. It just so happened that that evening they were reading Matthew 14, the story of the disciples in the boat, on the tempest, in the storm, the story where Jesus comes walking on the water, where he calls on Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water. They were reading and praying about that story when one of the mothers was basically electrified by the story. She said to the other mothers, don't you see it? Don't you see it? This is us. What do you mean? This is us. And she began to draw parallels. She said the storm which they faced in the boat is the storm we face every night. The lightning and the thunder that terrified them are the gunshots that we hear that terrify us. The, the, the disciples huddling in the boat for fear of death. It's us huddling down behind our door frames and windows, afraid that we're going to die. This is our story, she said. And then she said, and Jesus didn't calm the storm. He told Peter to get out of the boat, to walk on the water into the storm. That, she said, is what we must do. So this group of mothers, defenseless, well, they had this, defenseless, began to walk the barrios, began to walk them with songs and with prayers, walking in the night. It bewildered the gang members. They were befuddled by what happened. And then the mothers began to invite them to come, to sit down with the mothers to eat chips and salsa and drink Coca-Cola. And they slowly came. And then the mothers began to sing. Sing the songs of the old country. Sing the songs of Jalisco and Michoacan and Chiapas. Begin to sing. And it wasn't long after that that the stories begin to tumble from the lips of the gang members. Stories of rage at relentless poverty. Stories of fear of the police officers that patrolled. Stories of anger that they could never find jobs. But the guns weren't blazing. 
And then they gathered together, and with their parish priests, they said, we, we have to do something. And so they began to act. They said, we have a class now that you can come to that helps you learn how to deal, con deal with conflict without guns. We're setting up a tortilla factory. You can work here, a job. We can help you get other jobs. There are other classes that help you learn life skills, and that little parish suddenly begin to pulse with a different kind of life because some mothers stepped out of the boat and walked on the water straight into the storm. Do you know what I see there? I see a tributary flowing, flowing, into the great river of God's grace that Ezekiel couldn't swim. Just one more. And there are countless more stories like that one. Chuck Colson used to call them the little platoons, those little groups, those little companies, those little bands of believers that no one else pays much heed to, no one else really notices, but who somehow band together and say, we're going to live the love of God in the world, and we're going to take it outside of the church. We're going to take it to the streets and to the highways and to the byways and to the needy and to those dead and dry places like the Dead Sea where it seems nothing will live. But this river, when it comes brings life. The great theologian, the late John Stott, for whom I have immense appreciation, says this, quoting a historian and then commenting himself. Stott said, let me quote at one of his lectures, let me quote, from the end of Kenneth Latourette's seven-volume history of the expansion of Christianity, referring to Jesus, he said, Latourette says, no life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men as that of Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force. We could say has flowed a more powerful river for the triumphal waging of man's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. Through it, Millions of people have had their inner conflicts resolved. Through it, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. It has done more to ally the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse. And it has emancipated millions from chattel slavery and millions of others from thraldom to vice. It has protected tens of millions from exploitation by their fellows, and it has been the most fruitful source of movements to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of justice and peace. And then Stott says, this is the influence of Jesus through his followers in society. Don't underestimate the power and the influence that even a small minority can exert in the community. So we stand with Ezekiel looking at the door, and it's just a trickle. You can't see it from back there. It's just a trickle coming out from under the door, but it's coming from the very presence of God. It's the life of God. The love of God, the power of God that refuses to stay in there and refuses to stay in here.
It wants to get out beyond us, but through us. Will we be tributaries that flow into the great river of God's love and grace? So what could that look like for us? What would that be here at Loma Linda University Church? Maybe it begins with profound, heartfelt gratitude for what we have. Gratitude that we have spaces where we can come and worship God in freedom and peace, where we can be, we can be lifted up into his presence by prayer and scripture and music, where we can disciple one another, strengthen one another, where generations of young adults coming to this campus can learn to know Jesus better. It begins with gratitude for that. But it doesn't stop there. Maybe it looks like those of you who are university students who will graduate from this place, maybe as nurses or dentists or physicians, but who will say, when I graduate, I am going beyond just the prestigious places. I'm going out to the dead seas of this world where nothing lives to there further to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. Maybe it looks like an adult who comes alongside a young person who's struggling academically and who mentors and who tutors that young person and bends the twig of that person's academic life in a successful direction. Maybe it looks like a member of this community back in your neighborhood, walking out of your door one afternoon with a pot of soup and a loaf of bread and love in your heart and going over to that house where that elderly person lives whose children no longer visit her. And you knock on the door and you say, I just want to spend some time with you, listen to you, break bread with you. Maybe it looks like that young adult whose passion says, I want to make a difference in the world and who will not back off on that but gives her life, gives his life to do anything possible to end the scourge of sex trafficking. Maybe it looks like the young parent who says, I was raised with racism and prejudice in my heart and in my home. Well, I want to be a transitional person. It stops with me. I refuse to pass that on to the next generation. I will live for what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he says, the end of all things is to draw us to unity, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every human being in Christ. Maybe it looks like that business person who timidly approaches two or three colleagues and says, just wondering, you think you might be interested in joining me at Thursday lunch? Well, just read about Jesus, eat together and pray. Or maybe it has to do with that construction worker, that attorney, that physician who says from this day forward, that means of making money, that will be my avocation. My vocation will be introducing people to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what it looks like. But in every case, every single one of those become a small tributary flowing into the great river of God's grace and life-changing power. That's a river 
that I want my life to contribute to? Might my life be a small tributary flowing into that great river? And might that be true of you and of us? Because that river changes everything. It wasn't just Ezekiel who said that. John also underlined it in the last chapter of Scripture. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not lead, need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Gracious God, bless us, but challenge us. Deepen us and send us. Give us a burning passion to be tributaries in the world that flow into the great river filled with the water of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.